the group in power needs needs to be part of the solution. Otherwise, you know, otherwise a solution can't be made, right? There, it's the same thing with with white people in the conversation about race. And I think for me that allowed me to understand that my voice has a place and being a person in that conversation to help push forward any potential solutions is necessary, right? Just sitting back and letting other people do the talking is not like it's it's not going to make change. It's it's just not. This is the As It Should Be podcast, and I'm your host, Tamara Jones. Join me as I speak to the people remaking the world as it should be. We discuss the role of inclusion, equity, and belonging in facing the challenges shaping our society today. In today's episode, y'all are going to meet Neil Ludevig. Neil's a producer, curator, and artist based in Harlem, New York. He's also the founder of Moon 31, a company that creates experiences to bring people together in really innovative ways through arts, entertainment, music, and media. They're facilitating the conversations on topics that are really shaping our world today, like sustainability, racial justice, and even mental health. This actually ended up being one of my longer episodes, so I had to cut out a few things. So if you're interested in listening to the full unedited version of this and every as it should be podcast episode i invite you to become a patron drop down into the show notes and click on the link that says become a patron or head to patreon.com slash tamara jones and take advantage of the opportunity to not just listen to the unedited episodes but special opportunities like being able to watch the interviews live as they're happening so that you can ask questions to the interviewees and have your questions answered in real time. Get that and more when you become a patron. Go ahead and click on that link or head over to patreon.com slash Tamara Jones. Welcome to As It Should Be, Neil. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I think that the music industry is really special because it's one of those industries where you really have the power to drive a ton of awareness around because it scales fairly, like not easily. Of course, being an artist is getting, getting an audience as an artist is really, is really hard work. Yes, it is. (laughs) But for artists that have a strong following, it's really easy to rally people around or drive awareness around a specific issue because you, you are able to tap into such a huge, huge, audience, a huge number of people. Mm -hmm. So driving awareness and creating actionable systemic change are really two different things, or at least it can be argued to be two different things. How do you feel like you're doing both of those things? So, yeah, I mean, um, it's actually interesting. Um, I, there was a point in time a few years ago when I really started thinking, how, how am I deciding what I'm doing? Right. My my world's my I, I think I started thinking, who am I spending my time with and how am I spending my time? And in every project that came to me, I, I started thinking, is is there a way that I can sort sort out um sort out whether I should be working on this? Because otherwise you you kind of just get drawn day to day and you're just looking at this micro world, you know, in terms of tasks and you just get bogged down, bogged down, bogged down. And I think zooming out for a moment meant, uh, you know, meant that I can be a little bit more organized. I can remove a little bit of the stress and I think that I can function better. Um, so for me, I created a little bit of a checklist just to think first, how, you know, how am I approaching everything that I do? And when I started thinking how a, the conversation, you know, the conversation in my head was think about impact, right? What makes impact? It can be broadly create, you know, broadly, um, you know, raising awareness, um, systemic change, or, you know, for me, what impact is if I could see it right in front of my eyes. So, you know, those were kind of like, are we, you know, is, is whatever I'm going to be doing, going to be doing one of those things. Now they're often intercorrect, uh, interconnected, raising awareness and creating systemic change. Um, you know, they work hand in hand in, in creating impact. You look at, I, I forgot where I was reading it, but um, it was talking about just uh, about integration in schools, 
the Brown v. Board of Ed, right? Systemically, that change was made in the early 1950s. I think it was 1954, right? But you look at the actual integration of that, that didn't happen until there was broad awareness and activities and marches that was happening in the early 60s. It didn't matter that there was a systemic change. They have to, they have to work hand in hand. Right. And this is another conversation, but arguably right. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's still not technically done. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. And it's, and it's, and it's, there's still issues. Right. And I mean, that's, that's a whole other conversation entirely when you just think about the systemic issues that we have, you know, in integration in, in a lot of different things. Right. But um, so I do think that they're hand in hand. I often try to, um, you know, just in terms of focus, thinking, okay, what is this doing? Is this doing one of one of you know one or the other? If it's doing both, great. I mean, I look at some of the stuff that I've most recently done for Climate Week. Um, I did um, uh, the Marketplace of the Future with Future Meets Present and a really good friend of mine, uh, Amir Jindali. And that was an enormous event, right? We had a huge platform. It was essentially the closing night of Climate Week. Um, you know, and it was and it was bringing to the forefront and in this massive space. And actually this year it was totally virtual, which that in itself was um, quite a feat and like major props to Amir uh, for doing it. But the, anyone could come to it, but Climate Week is completely filled with policymakers, right? These are people from all over the world um, that are making an impact in climate change um, and have the ear and the access to the people that can actually make those changes. So people were talking about, I mean, you see these people like Greta Thunberg and, um, you know, that, that are making impact in their own ways, but this was, it had a large platform. And so it, you know, there was press coverage, et cetera, but it was also the right people were there that can make that kind of systemic change. So I kind of think that's a little bit of a combination of both. I did the 50th year anniversary of Black Woodstock back in 2019. And in addition to being a huge event that nobody historically knew, and so we got coverage from the Times and Rolling Stone and all these different, you know, different people, there was three days of conversation that had policymakers. We had the Manhattan Borough president um, and, you know, talking with former cops and former Panthers and current activists and artists, really talking about what their policies were, how things can change, what the current state of the community was. So, I mean, again, I think there's, they work hand in hand. It's bringing the right people to the table, um, you know, to, to connect and hopefully foster the relationships that will say, you know, I think there's actually something here. I think this is the, the, the seedling of further conversation. And then it goes after that. But, you know, I mean, those are things that, uh, you know, combine both. I'm also working right now with Oceanic Global and, working um actually we're going to launch it uh in the next week or so um it's a packet it's a, a guy that's actually looking at the intersection uh if uh, the the i think leah thomas is the person that really coined the phrase intersectional environmentalism how race is intersecting and social justice is intersecting with the environmentalist movement and right now there's a major issue if you look at the majority of nonprofits and organizations that are focusing on climate change they're, uh, they're largely led by white people. And yet, statistically, the people that are impacted most are, um, are uh, communities of color and low to medium, you know, whether it's African-American or Hispanic. And even more than that, statistically, the people that typically advocate the strongest and are most likely to do that to their local representatives and politicians are people of color. Right. And so what, where is that disconnect? And so we're launching a, a kit and a guide on how to sustainably protest and hopefully think, hopefully, you know, bring environmental people more, environmental activists more to that social justice movement and getting them and feeling very purposeful in marches, in vigils, in demonstrations, in, you know, peaceful protests, but also, uh, thinking where, you know, for, so, for people that are in the social justice movement to get them to be a little bit, you know, think about their impact from every single one uh, mass demonstration and realize these are both human causes. Um, so this is something that's a little bit more systemic focused, right? It's, act, it's actions, um, it's a guide, it's, you know, a, almost like a rule book and a policy, you know, it's something that can potentially be used as a policy thing. But again, if the right people get it and if it's implemented in the right way, it can broadly raise awareness. 
So I think everything that I kind of do tries to have a little bit of everything. I like to see the impact of what I'm doing and I like to make some kind of change, but um, it's, it's really just uh, a checklist for me to kind of decide first, is this something that I want to do? Um, and then once I actually get there, it's, it's, you know, thinking, okay, cool. Like how, how is this going to next be done, et cetera. One thing that I really noticed is that you're really creative in how you tackle any particular issue. And one of the things that I end up seeing a lot with my own work is that when I try to rally people around any specific issue, it like historically that that issue may feel super nebulous to that person. It might not feel super attached to that person. I the work that I've done most mostly has been around belonging and diversity and inclusion. Um, so that work, if you are not directly impacted, if you can't visibly see how you're directly impacted, because personally, I feel like everybody's directly impacted by belonging and inclusion. Um, but if you can't visibly see how, then it feels super nebulous to you. And then sustainability is one of the issues that you were just talking about, um, especially with the marketplace that you that you did last year. Um, I that's one of the issues also that I tend to see people feel like I'm completely disconnected from this issue and they don't apply it to their lives mm. at all. So like with my DNI work, I could very easily, I have very easily seen people who I've, who I've worked with that work in sustainability feel like they're just yelling into this void because the people who show up to the thing are the people who have been showing up and have been doing the work. And the, the problem is when you have the same people over and over again, it changes a lot slower than it could be if you had everybody or not everybody, but at least a, a wider group of people at the table and doing and implementing this work in their life. So I wonder, like, since you're so, so creative, can you kind of talk a bit about how you avoid yelling into that void <laughs> that I spend my life screaming in? <laughs> um, first, it's definitely good to do a little yelling, whether it's into a pillow or a void and just get that frustration out. I, <laughs> I, I think a lot of people feel that, especially for 2020. Uh, for, for sure, for sure. Um, you know, I think, you know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before. I think thinking about who you're surrounding yourself with makes a really big difference. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, you know, that checklist system, right? Thinking first, what causes I'm working on and how, and what is the impact, you know, that they're making is, is one thing. I, I try as much as possible when I'm putting on these massive events or working on these projects to really diversify the people that are coming to the table, sometimes metaphorically and other times literally, right? I, I do this thing called Fed Sessions. Fed stands for Feed, Educate, Discuss. It's a, it's a dinner series that I say we make bread and break bread together. So I'll bring a, a, a thought leader or someone that has something interesting to say. Um, I especially like it when people... Um, you know, might be a world like a multi Grammy award winning artist, but they're actually talking about sustainability, right? They're like, so you mm -hmm. see that people are really robust, um, interesting characters and that there's a lot of depth and breadth to them. Um, but so they'll have a conversation. I have a, um, a, a, a friend of mine, Matt Powell, that actually he curates the meal to that conversation. And then I bring all the ingredients and we all cook together. And then afterwards we talk about it. Um, what, is very specific that I do there is to think who are the going to be the people at the table that are actually going to, uh, that we're you know, going to be talking to make sure that there's a little bit of a diversity in opinion and thought process and that we're actually coming out learning something because otherwise you're doing exactly what you just said, which is just, you're either patting yourselves on the back or, mm -hmm. you know, just talking to a bunch of people that just like, great. Yeah. Like we all agree on this, but it's, I think important, with any conversation to come out having learned something, right? It's a growth mentality. So we have a split um, that there are ticket, but there's, you know, for 20 tickets, maybe five of them will be for ticket purchases. Another five mm -hmm. will be need-based. So people will, can apply and state their case and say, great, um, you know, here's why I would like a free ticket or, you know, can you do this and uh, do that? The other five are completely random and it's just a raffle. And the other five are guests, guests of the people um, that either the chef or the speaker or myself or the host to really kind of think when all else fails, like who is someone that could really 
weigh in and have some experience or thought or knowledge on the subject. I think mm-hmm. it's important. There's, um, there's actually something that's popping into my head. I forgot the name of it. Maybe it was like a TED Talk. Um, but there was a conversation um, that there, there was a, a school club. I think maybe it was at Yale or there's, uh, William and Mary. But there's a club that was particularly uh, focused on bringing controversial speakers to campus. Mm-hmm. And it got uh, this one particular speaker that I think the person that led that club, he was, um, he was, uh, he was a black kid and he brought the speaker that was notoriously racist or he was put an offer that was accepted by the speaker that was notoriously racist that was speaking um, uh, and had publications that was saying that blacks were genetically inferior. Like, I mean, just mm-hmm. ludicrous stuff. And the school flipped out. And a lot of the, the students were saying, why on earth are you giving this kid, a, this person, a platform to speak? And ultimately, they, the school forced the student to revoke the invitation and they didn't allow him. And it was very controversial uh, at the time. And when that kid was being um, interviewed about it and they were saying, why would you do this? He said, look, in any conversation, in any subject, you need to know what the opposing side is going to say. You have to be able yeah. to listen to them, if nothing else, so that you can construct your arguments better, right? So you can, so you can find those solutions um, and you can articulate your arguments because if you aren't willing to listen to that's the other side, then you're just as bad as them, right? Mm-hmm. That's basically saying like, my way is right and your way is wrong and I'm not going to listen to you, right? So you have to be able to have that dialogue. So I think you know, coming back to your question and how do I avoid screaming into the void? Um, and I think thinking about who I'm surrounding myself with and coming from a mentality that, you know, it's thinking about growth and making sure that there are different opinions around mm-hmm. me, that helps me a lot. Um, the, the last thing I'll say, which um, uh, is something that uh, guides a lot of my relationships and a good friend of mine told me about is, um, constructing uh, a lot of people think relationships are a and B, right? Like I'm uh, it's, we're the only two parties that exist. And in fact, they were saying there's actually a third party, which is the relationship itself and defining the context of your relationship, um, whether it be in growth, whether it be happiness or security completely makes a difference into how you feel and act and basically the dynamic of the relationship itself, right? Because if you have, if you build your relationships on growth, you might not be happy all the time, but you're growing as a person. But as long as you're okay with that, that and that you can agree with, that's something that'll make a very big difference in your life. As opposed to if you want relationships around you that are only for security, right? That if you do, you know, do something wrong or you have a hard day, or you're frustrated, you might want to just only listen to people that will say, here's how I'm going to solve your problem. I'm just going to give you a bunch of money to solve it, right? They're not going to challenge you in any way. They're just going to find a solution for you. Versus someone, you know, relationships that are about happiness that are saying, you know what, like, no, 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 like that person's wrong. You're right. Like, I'm just going to tell you what you want to hear. I think thinking about the relationships that you have around you um, makes a really big difference. And I think where I am in life and I'm just, you know, I, I want to be make sure that I'm constantly a little bit uncomfortable and I'm challenged by the people around me. So when we said you were a curator, we were serious. <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> You're not only curating experiences, you're very <laughs> intentional about who is at, who is attending these experiences. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that that's really important. So as a, as a musician, as a producer, a lot of people might not know this, um, but back in June, when everybody, when your entire Instagram feed was just black boxes, <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that initiative was actually led by the music industry with their um, the show must be paused hashtag. So Moon Moon Thirty One, did you guys take part in in Blackout Tuesday and like or like what was your involvement with Blackout Tuesday? Yeah, so we put up the Black Square. Uh, we posted information for others to do it as well. Um, you know, I I think in terms of like social media, that that was kind of where it ended. Um, you know, as an organization and individually, you know, we worked in organizing and participated in a lot of events, right? The we, we Are Blacksmiths and Wide Awakes are two fantastic organizations 
Uh, we Are Blacksmiths is led by uh, Russell Hall. He's an amazing bassist and Michaela Lerman. Um, but they did a march for Juneteenth. Um, um, and actually, they've been organizing things throughout the summer. So we were helping them. And I also helped with the March on Washington there, donated to the NAACP. Um, you know, we've actually also been in conversations with a major distribution label to make uh, a few compila compilation albums that would feature only Black artists. And with, with the funds, with a major portion of the funds being donated to Black Lives Matter and heavily shifting the rights and the returns for all the artists that are participating on the album. So there is stuff that hap that's happening on the back end. Um, you know, I'll say that for a lot of those kinds of larger movements, um, you know, there's a point in time when I would even say, like, I question the, the efficacy, uh, the, uh, like how efficient these kinds of actions were. I mean, protest in general has taken a new meaning in recent years. Um, you know, I often like question, like, what is the impact of going to an actual protest, um, you know, systemically or impact, you know, in terms of real impact or actually putting the black square up. Um, and two, as somebody told me two things, they said, first, if everybody thought like me, then nobody would do it. We wouldn't know the gravity of the issue, right? We wouldn't know that there's a problem. And, you know, myself, I'm not just doing it for myself and my company is not just doing it for my company. We're doing it for all the other companies and all the individuals that maybe don't have a say in what their companies can do, right? Or maybe the individuals that can't put up a black square or, you know, because they don't have access to social media or, you know, right? For, for whatever, or they can't go to a protest or reasonably voice or safely voice their opinion, right? There's like serious risks into that. So for me, that kind of, I felt there's a degree of responsibility just in doing that because I can, because we can, and we can. Um, so, I mean, there's been mixed opinions about its effectiveness, right? A lot of people thought it was virtue signaling um, and that it also like impacted about, you know, hashtags, um, which were being used for protests. Um, but I think, I think the last thing that I'll, I would say to this, which is part of my own personal journey, um, in thinking about where I stand on some of these things is, um, this is connected into my identity as an ally or actually what I've shifted the language in terms of being actually rather than ally saying I'm an accomplice, right. In the, in the conversation, right. Because there's a, a, a friend of mine, Willie Jackson, that wrote a great article I'm talking about a necessary shift in that language, right? Allies are people that do something, but there's nothing inherently at stake for them. They don't have a stake in the game or risk. If they do something wrong, if they put this black square and they aren't thinking about it, oops, sorry, like not a big deal. Accomplices are people that they're putting their reputation at stake. They're putting money at stake. They're putting their safety at stake. And when you have something at stake, which inherently are the people pro typically protesting and impacted, um, you'll do a better job of it. You'll think about your actions and, and, your, um, and how you're impacting the world around you and you'll be more effective. And so for me, um, you know, something that I actually wrote about in an article um, on my website is just thinking, what are the things that, what are the real risks for me um, you know, in terms of doing this? And I think the biggest thing is public criticism. And I mean, that's on a personal level, that's the biggest thing, right? How me as an individual and how my company is viewed, and I'm willing to take that risk. If I'm doing something wrong, that's okay. I want to hear that person that's willing to say, you know what, like, here's how you should have done it. And I'll take a note and I'll shift and I'll change it, but it's not going to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging I will be doing things wrong for sure. There's, there's thinking that I'm doing everything right is that's privilege in a nutshell, you know? So absolutely. <laughs> I would actually love to get into that a little bit since we are on the subject of allyship and privilege. Can you tell us a little bit about just like in in a minute or so, like two minutes, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, so everybody is kind of aware of, of who you are before we before we dive into your privilege. Uh, sure. Um, yeah. Uh, it, any particular lens or. Um, diversity, I would say. Okay. So like race is definitely a big one. Sure. But also where you grew up, where you went to school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely a white man. Like that is, I'm at the top of the privilege, you know, uh, pyramid. Um, so, you know, uh, from, from that sense, there's a lot to learn. I am absolutely taking 
you know, reaping the benefits of that, right? What I choose to do with that is another conversation. And I think that's part of what we're talking about. But I think beyond that, like the lens that I have to offer and, you know, what's particularly unique about me and my upbringing, I mean, I'm first generation. My parents left their countries, um, you know, and they were, they emigrated because, you know, under persecution, right? My, my mom left, Pol- my mom's from Poland, my dad's from Russia. Both of them experienced major anti-Semitism and had to leave and abandon everything and ultimately come to America with nothing, right? So it's honestly part of what informs what I was talking about earlier, which is what are the fears and the things that I face? There's actually um, a great book, which uh, also informs a lot of my work and just my ideas and thoughts. Um, It's uh, by Napoleon Hill. It's Think and Grow Rich. Uh, but it basically says that there are seven basic fears of man and, um, you know, and those effectively inform um, or people and those effectively inform everything that we do um, and how we do them. So for me, when I said there's a fear of public criticism, uh, the fear of criticism and there's a fear of poverty, both of those are connected to the fact that public criticism and the public eye, like those were heavy informants into what forced my family to leave their countries, right? Public opinion of Jews. Um, which impacted how much they worked or if they had jobs and their parents worked and if they were had stability or if they could have a life there. Um, and then ultimately coming here with nothing and having to build it and figure it out and realizing whether I like it or not, that was instilled in my thought process and my ideology and how I look for things. So my fears that I have to face is thinking, do my actions, can they impact how I'm looked at, my opportunities and what money and stability I have, both because that impacts your livelihood and your health and, you know, the rest of your life. Um, so, yeah, I would, that's probably the best, I would say, I, I hope that answers my, your question in terms of yeah. a little bit of background. Yeah, no, I actually didn't know that you're Jewish. You, that was part of your story, right? You're like your parents. Your yeah, both, both of them are Jewish. You know, it's something that I'll say. Um, you know, am I a practicing Jew? No, like I'm not someone, but I have very strong Jewish roots. I mean, my great aunt is a professional Jewish storyteller. Um, you know, both my parents, obviously, like a large part of their identity is from that. I mean, even, you know, my dad did a family tree history and like, I think four generations in, like my great, great, great grandfather led the, you know, led the uh, migration of Russian Jews from Russia to Israel. Um, you know, and my mom's parents survived the Holocaust. I mean, like wow. those are deeply ingrained in who I am and my traditions and, you know, and, and how I think. So, um, you know, I think it's, it is a cultural identity, if nothing else. I find a, that a lot of white men struggle with the struggle to actually reach allyship or reach being an accomplice, as you put it. Um, well, like I'll have those conversations with them where they're stuck in this place where they're either co-opting the movement or they're putting the onus on the oppressed to reshape systems that are built against them or like they're just never quite making it to the the point of like i recognize my privilege and i'm going to empower i'm going to employ my privilege to like break down those constructs that are hurting other people but somehow that they never quite make it there. <laughs> and, and I, I, um, so that's what I, I, I call it the white savior versus the, the ally challenge. Um, and so I'm wondering how you've seen this challenge show up in your own journey or that of your peers. Um, I, I, so, I mean, I'll just start by saying, obviously I can only speak to my own experience. Um, you know, what I would say is I genuinely struggled with this uh, for quite a long time internally. I think what, uh, first, just the world that I was in professionally and actually personally, just in the music world, specifically in jazz, like I, I'm typically the minority in the, you know, the minority in the room, at least when it comes to like jazz music and stuff like, mm-hmm. um, you know, as, as a, a, unless you're talking about like industry folks, which that, you know, that uh, clearly sh- shifts. Um, which you is know, problematic. Which is very problematic. Um, but that's again for for the next uh, the next conversation or maybe the next question. I don't even know. Um, uh, but so I'll say I think what I heard from a lot of people and just what I think what I was uh, which which is a very good place to start is start by listening, right? 
don't not not to not to not to be filling the 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 room with your own voice. Um, and I think I actually probably took that to the extreme to a place, especially with my work in Harlem Arts Festival. I was working, you know, and starting an organization in a gentrifying community as a white person not from that community, right? Like that is practically the definition of like a white savior mentality. So I had a lot of barriers to entry and a lot of people in that community that was questioning what are my intentions and what are my motives there. And a big part of it was saying, hey, I'm very serious in about this work and about what this means to me and why a big part of its intention. I I do believe that if your intention is good, that is the most important part, right? Then it just comes back to being okay with making mistakes and being corrected. Um, So, but... Harlem Arts Festival was a nonprofit. And I think the way that I often thought about was, you know, and especially often seen in the nonprofit world is our job and our responsibility was creating platforms for other people to make the conversation. And I was thinking as a white person, I really should, you know, I I should be elevating uh, other opinions and thoughts that have to do with this, especially, you know, individuals of color who need need a platform to speak and to showcase their work and that have something valuable to say. Um, I was listening to a great conversation, uh, a TED talk, uh, where this guy Jackson Katz was actually talking about gender violence. Um, and he was saying that calling gender violence a woman's issue is part of the problem. It's one of the ways dominant systems maintain and reproduce themselves, which is to say, that dominant, the dominant group is rarely challenged to think about its dominance. It's one of the key characteristics of power and privilege is the ability to go unexamined and lacking introspection. And he ended it by saying, and this is something that's informed basically like practically my mission statement for my organization, um, you know, that concept. But he said, men are being erased from a conversation that's centrally about men. And for me, like, boom, a light bulb went off and understanding like, if men in that conversation need to be part of that conversation, right? Because the group in power needs, needs to be part of the solution. Otherwise, you know, otherwise the solution can't be made, right? They're, it's the same thing with, with white people in the conversation about race. And I think for me, that allowed me to understand that my voice has a place and being a person in that conversation to help push forward any potential solutions is necessary, right? Just sitting back and letting other people do the talking is not like it's it's not going to make change. It's it's just not. So I think for me, um, that that kind of allowed me to have a little bit of a guiding principle to start a conversation and to shift gears and think, what do I want to say and how do I want to say it? And am I okay, okay saying something wrong? Um, so you know. Again, I, I wrote about this uh, actually in, in in an article on my website, particularly to be a little bit brave in my mind and face a little bit of fear and say, this is what I think. This is what I think people should do. And it was educate yourselves, empower others, be very clear on your actions, provide solutions um, as opposed to complaints, right? If you're just complaining about something, then you're not solving the problem. You're not, you know, constructive criticism is nice, but if you're going to suggest an alternative, stand behind it and actually do do it. Otherwise, just get out of the way. And at the end of the day, give, right? Um, so I think for me, those are kind of some guiding principles that I would say other people that are thinking about, about this, you know, intention is a starting point thinking, what is your intention? Are you trying to do this? You know, what I was talking about earlier, which, you know, about the, the Black Square uh, movement, which is, you know, are you co-opting it to make yourself appear? Um, like you're more sensitive and that you care about this issue just because it's, you know, an issue that, you know, people are talking about, or do you actually believe in it? It's a very important evaluation to make. And then if you really want to do it, think how far are you willing to go? How are you willing to go to a protest? Are you willing to be in a protest after hours? Are you willing to get arrested? Right. It's facing your fears, right? Whatever your fear is, if you're, you know, if you, if you have a fear, if you're scared of going to jail, like go protest on the front lines. If you're worried about not having enough money in your life, make a donation that feels real. I'm not talking about, you know, a dollar, you know, or a thousand dollars if you're a millionaire. Like, right, a thousand dollars only means something if you have two thousand dollars to your name, right? You know, if you're concerned about what your fr- friends think, you know, and what they'll think of you, publish an article and put it every single place. It has to be personal to you, and that's inherently what that shift is from allyship to accomplishship. 
Um, so I think like, I, I, don't, I hope that answers your question, but I think yeah. that's, that's kind of at least where I am right now. I think I'm trying to uh, be very intentional in what I'm saying and why I'm saying it and where I'm saying it. And also, um, you know, if I'm putting stuff out there, being ready for the response, right? You, uh, you just have to, you know, it's not just about putting it out there. It's listening and looking at the comments and things and like, okay, how am I integrating this and shifting and pivoting? So, yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that because um, w- one thing you were talking about besides being really intentional and I feel like that's important and that gets lost a lot because I see I, I see it in action where people are are feeling like they're going to say something or do something and they're not doing it because they feel like they have a personal stake in it. They're doing it so that everybody around them sees and they feel like they're getting some sort of pat on the back for it. Um, yeah. And, and I like what you were saying about personal risk, because I feel like if you face your fear and like, let's say your, your fear is everybody knowing or something like everybody hearing what you have to say, your, your friends mm-hmm. hearing you, then that like publishing it, that that's, that's accountability by itself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone exactly. around you feels like they're holding you account or like they will hold you accountable. Right. Like you said. Right. And so you can't, I mean, as a lot of people have learned on social, like you can't unpublish something. Like once it's out onto the internet, like people will find it. Someone will take that screenshot or whatever it is. And yeah, it's, it's real accountability. And I think for yeah. me, it's, you know, I think I was also having these conversations a lot, you know, with a lot of the people that were just in my world, both in the music world. And I'm hearing that. But I mean, like even on the basketball court, like I play basketball every single week and there would be people talking to me about stuff. And it was one thing to talk about it. But, you know, at some point I was like, what? There's nothing at risk here. Cool. I, I could voice. Cool. I agree with you. Great. But like, what yeah. am I actively doing in terms? And it comes back to that checklist, right? If I have any kind of platform, I should be using it for this if I really believe in it. Um, and I think that's I, I think that's, you know, a good advice for anybody listening. Right. Think about what assets you have and what you're willing to risk. And if you're not willing to risk it, then you might, your intention might not be as true as you think it is. And it, it bears reevaluation. How do you feel like the work that you've done has impacted or the work that you do every day? How do you feel like that's impacted your own sense of belonging? Um, so when I think about belonging, I think about acceptance, right? It, Acceptance, it's connected to community. I mean, a lot of my work is about community and, you know, communities are relationships. It's relationship building. So I, I think about, I think about building community trust in relationships. It's, it, I mean, it really comes back to what I was actually saying before, which is it's, it's getting everyone to the table, right? It's not just getting them there. It's creating a space where they feel comfortable to speak and really honestly, I actually, there was um, way at the beginning, um, almost 10 years ago, uh, uh, from Harlem Arts Festival, I was really fortunate to meet um, Albert Mazels. He's uh, one, of, one of two brothers, the Mazels brothers, and really one of the best, uh, the most um, uh, um, meaningful or impactful documentary filmmakers of the 20th century. They did Salesman, uh, Gimme Shelter. They did they documented when the Beatles came to America, some really significant stuff. Um, and one of the things that made him really special as a filmmaker and people were asking, like, how did he manage to get some of this footage? Um, and these because all of this was, docu- you know, documentary experience, like seeing things as they were unfolding um, and people sharing very vulnerable things about them. Uh, it had to do with intention and honesty. And he and he said he's just been very lucky that people were willing to share with him. Right. And part of it had to do with setting up a space um, and a system, um, you know, and, a, and an area and a community and kind of develop, you know, and just working on the relationships that people felt comfortable to share and illustrating that you're willing to learn. Um, so I think for me, how my work has really impacted my sense of belonging and connection and relationships, um, I, I try really, um, and I see this most effectively in the work that I do. Um, I try to set up systems um, in place so that um, relationships can grow and I can really create spaces where, you know, that growth mentality that I spoke about earlier can be 
um, can be fostered and supported and, you know, and, and really pushed. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's, that's kind of what's, what's most important to me. I mean, I even do just in my company with any person that, uh, works, works there or that I'm working, you know, working with, whether it's an intern or a staff member, we do check-ins every two to three months, um, where they're not just evaluating themselves. They're actually evaluating me. And I do the exact same thing. I'm evaluating myself and I'm evaluating them. And then we just compare and contrast and see like, where's the difference, right? Like, do I think that I did a fantastic job and this person thinks I did a terrible job? Why is there such a disconnect? Um, and I think by setting up a space where you can talk about that, that's what allows relationships uh, to flourish. And the better relationships you have, the more you know, the better the communities that you're in. And, you know, to me, that helps my sense of belonging. It makes me feel, you know, like I'm really listening and part of a community. Um, the last thing that I'll say is that book, Think and Grow Rich, talks about um, how the most, it analyzes the most successful people of all time, uh, you know, at least during that time. I mean, there's a few issues with the book, uh, obviously, in terms of like who he's interviewing, which are largely men and white men. But um, that's, you know, they were definitely, you know, when you look at Henry Ford and Thomas Edison, I mean, those people just had the most opportunity, but he looks at those people and he, and all of those people had what he called a mastermind alliance. These people that balanced out the, the skill sets that, you know, these people, fra you know, perhaps didn't have. So when he looks at Henry Ford, he said he, he didn't, he didn't have an education. He came from poverty um, he knew nothing about science um, or engineering, and yet, how did you know he was he was a mechanic, um, and yet he built one of the largest organizations and most successful organizations in the world. And so, this this a mastermind alliance. He said it's not just about filling with people of different skill sets that balance out. It's actually about giving more to those people than they give to you on a consistent basis, because as long as you do that, then those people will always have a value and see see you as a valuable addition to that community. It's very similar in, you know, in, in any community, right? You should always be finding a way to give back. Otherwise, you're just, you know, you're just a taker. And that sucks. <laughs> you talked a lot earlier about um, efficacy and especially when it came to the Black Squares um, and Blackout Tuesday. And I wonder... I wonder, um, being in the, in the art world, how do you feel like, because one thing you mentioned um, that I called out that was problematic was <laughs> that, <laughs> that when you look at the artists, a lot of them are diverse of color, different gender identity. Well, not a lot of different gender identities for anyways. Right. Um, but <laughs> but with, like a lot of them are diverse, whereas like the industry people, the industry people are not so much. So when you think about the art world in general, how does the intersection of race and class, do you feel like impacts the conversation around access? Yeah, I think, I think they are completely intertwined, right? I mean, you look at today's world, race impacts access. Access, access impacts class, and class impacts opportunity. And until race and class don't define one another, you know, equal access, um, you know, you that that notion of real equal justice, that's you know, that's just not, um, it's not going to be achieved. There's a, a really cool, um, I don't know if you've ever seen that picture um, that you know has it's like the three people looking over a fence. Um, and the first one, right, it says equality. It's the assumption that everyone is equal. Um, and they're benefiting from the same things. And you have like a tall person, a medium person, and a kid, right? The tall person can see the game. The medium person just sees right over the vents. And the, the kid obviously can't see. He's just, he's looking at a fence because he's not tall enough, right? The shift from equality to the next step of equity, right, is that notion. I mean, a lot of people call it affirmative action, right? Where, you know, the tallest person doesn't have any any boost the middle person has a little boost and the tall and the shortest person he's got extra boost right so they can all see equally but the truth is like until where you know when you're talking about access and the intersection and you know all of that stuff the notion that there are systemic uh you know the systemic ways which we haven't achieved yet um that you don't need these boosts right and the the last picture in the ones that i've seen is actually rather than a wooden fence 
you've got to see through friends, right? So nobody needs the boost and everybody can see into the game, right? Because the cause of inequity was actually addressed. That, I, you know, and it was, it's, I saw that. I was like, oh, whoa, that is awesome. Um, because it just, it's, it's a different way of thinking. But right now, I think we are fundamentally in a place you know, where race, unfortunately, has a direct impact in what class you're in. Like, there are people that overcome that, but that needs to change, right? And I mean, even, even when we're talking about the arts, arts is still something that, you know, having a job in the arts is still something that isn't seen as accessible. It's, you know, you look at where the education system, and there's lots of issues within our education system, but we have a tremendous focus on STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, math. And there's only recently been a shift to introduce um, arts into the picture. And they call that like STEAM as opposed to STEM. Um, but I, I think that, you know, where is the intersection? I mean, I think there are things that need to change. Uh, for sure, there are some great organizations working to address that. And one of my favorites is this organization called the Laundromat Project. Um, if you, um, they did something where, you know, thinking about how people of different income classes or the basic root um, of it um, is how can people of different income classes get exposure to art, right? A lot of people say, well, galleries are free. Like go look at Chelsea. Like you can go, anybody can go there, but what about the person that's working two jobs and has three kids and can't you know, take off in the afternoon to go to the gallery? Like that's just not, it's just not thinking. It's, it's, it's not thinking in a way that's addressing inequity, right? So what they did is where do the people uh, and, or started with is where do the largest majority of people meet of different income classes? And they said laundromats, right? So putting, putting artwork there is a, is a start in addressing that kind of inequity. Um, the founder of that, Reese Wilson, is just the coolest person ever. I mean, I've heard her speak a few times and man, it's just, you know, she's just thinking in this kind of way. So I, I think as I, you know, when I think of art, it's not just visual, it's music, dance, theater, and visual arts. Um, you know, and actually film and TV, I, I think we still have a way to, you know, a, a way to go here. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, first steps, fig figuring, figuring out how we can, uh, what the solutions are and actually addressing them as much as possible. That's, that's, that's where to begin. Thank you so much. I, I mean, I've loved this conversation. So if people want to uh, get in contact with you or learn more about Moon 31, how can they get in touch? Sure. Um, so website, moon31.com. That's M-O-O-N-3-1.com. Uh, Instagram, moon31exp. Uh, my website is also Neil Ludevig, just spelled out N-E-A-L-L-U-D-E-V-I-G.com. And then on Instagram, I'm at Mr. Neilio, all spelled out. Uh, that's awesome. M-I-S-T-E-R-N-E-A-L-I-O. Um, yeah, I'd say that's the, that's the, that's the way. There's also, um, I would say, uh, when you just mentioned, do I have anything to add? Uh, yeah. Jess launching uh, and part of a, uh, a new production company that's coming out, Snarky Elephant uh, Productions. Um, so Ooh. just to be on the lookout, we've already done. A what season. kind of programs are you doing? Like huh? What kind of what kind of uh, shows are you doing? Yeah, or is it is it music? Is it shows? No. So this is I mean, you know, it, uh, you were kind of saying like very much in the music world. I'm actually doing a big shift and film and TV is just something that I think when I think of what makes the most impact, storytelling is a big part of it. And the visual medium is huge. So I'm actually writing uh, for our second season. We've, we've launched this uh, show called Insomnia already, and we're working on quite a few others uh, and talking to some networks. But uh, Insomnia is, it's about, uh, think high maintenance meets Atlanta, you know, with Fleabag, with a splash of Insecure. Uh, we talk about mental, it's a lot. We talk about mental health. We talk about sexuality. We talk about identity and race. The concept is actually about a bisexual South Asian writer that lives in New York City and has insomnia and he's supporting his sick aunt by moonlighting as an escort, right? So there's a lot packed in there, but where, you know, where I'm actually most excited and so Snarky Elephant Productions, you know, we often say that, you know, we're addressing the elephant in the room, right? For us, it's, it's we're creating content that's exploring the underrepresented human experience and it doesn't matter if it's scripted or unscripted, it's about championing emerging creators that are interested uh, in, you know, and whose identities inspire them to devise societal barriers 
and educate uh, uh, to educate and shift standards, right? We were talking about like the systems in place and uh, even in music, but it's the same thing in film. Our intention, we want to change company cultures and the industry and, you know, and larger global sensitivities, right? And so um, we have some cool stuff going to be coming out pretty soon. But I would say if they want to check that out, uh, Insomnia is a good place to start. And um, yeah, so... Is that on YouTube or where, where is that? Where can they find the show? So you can find it, insomniatheshow.com. Um, okay. And then our main website is going to be launched. Uh, snarkyelephant.com is going to be coming pretty soon too. But uh, yeah, it's... Uh, there's just... I'm... Every time I like look and read, I mean the other the 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 co-founder um, uh, and one of the the creator for Insomnia and for Snarky Elephant, Vishal Reddy, I mean, he's just making such amazing content. Uh, every time I like read through it and look at, it, I'm just like, man, this is just I'm so excited, inspired, and just thinking like this. I hope that this changes some opinions, right? Yeah. And yeah, so that's another place and thing to check out too. That's exciting. I will put all of that in the show notes <laughs> so everybody can can get to know Neil a little more past this podcast. So thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you again so much to Neil for joining me on today's episode. Again, I invite you all to become a patron if you want to listen to the unedited version of this conversation, because we did get into a few things that I actually cut out of this episode just for the sake of time, because we're hitting on an hour already. So I invite you to drop down into the show notes and click on the become a patron link or head over to patreon.com slash Tamara Jones and check out the options that we have. It's more than just listening to unedited episodes. You get a one week early access to every episode that we drop here on the podcast. You get the opportunity to listen to the interviews live as they're happening so you can get your questions answered in real time. And you can even watch the video, the recorded video of all of these episodes so you can catch those nuanced moments that really don't get captured um, in audio or also get may just get cut out of the episode completely. (laughs) So I invite you to head on over, become a patron and join us on this really fun ride. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. If you have any feedback, feel free to email me or hit me up on Instagram. I'm around. Tamara Jones on all social platforms. Until next time, y'all. Peace.